This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, we are going to be talking about Chapter 7, continuing in the book, The Tao of Fully Feeling, which we've been covering and going over um, in some depth in the past several episodes. And then we're nearing the end of March, which I said I wasn't going to go beyond March for this podcast episode, and I'm going to hold to that. So the next chapter, Chapter 8, has quite a bit of information in it, and I didn't feel like it was right to combine it with Chapter 7 and just kind of skip over or look at the surface part of Chapter 8. So what I'm going to do is next Monday, I'm going to release two podcast episodes again. So I'll release one on chapter eight and then chapter nine is actually the final chapter in the book where he gets to what do we do with all of this as we've been looking into it. Now what? Right. And so chapter nine is all about self-compassionate reparenting. And so I don't want to rush that one either. So I'll do two episodes that we'll release next Monday chapter eight and chapter nine in the Tao of Fully Feeling. And that will bring us to the end of that book. I hope you've been enjoying it. I know with several of my clients who are reading the book, I've had some great discussions with them as they've been reading the book, listening to the podcast episodes, recognizing things in their own life or in their own story and starting to feel differently about that or look at that differently or the way that it hits them is a little bit different than maybe it has been in the past. And so I think that's great. I think that's a great outcome of spending some time really looking at this particular book. I've also had some great discussions in staff meeting as we meet weekly as therapists to discuss, you know, different things each week. So often some of the things we're talking about relates back to one of the concepts in this book. And many of my colleagues are also reading the book and listening to the podcast episodes. And that's always good. I feel like I digest more of a book when I'm able to read it and then have conversations, listen to other people's thoughts and insights into it or what their takeaway from the book is. I feel like I more fully integrate or digest the information in the book that way. So chapter seven in The Tao of Fully Feeling is about blame and forgiveness. The subtitle is Blame is Not a Dirty Word. He starts out quoting Alice Miller saying, we were compelled to gratify our parents' unconscious needs at the cost of our own self-realization. We need to experience the rebellion and mourning aroused by the fact that our parents were not available to fulfill our primary needs. Again, sometimes when I am talking to clients and we're, you know, maybe we've done a genogram and maybe I'm not drawing out a genogram, but we're just kind of looking at trauma through the generations and tracing it back to their parents, grandparents, if they know prior to that, their grandparents, parents, sometimes just recognizing. And then also if we know much about U.S. history, since we're located in this country, but even beyond U.S. history, world history, like often I tell clients, I just don't think that there's 
been a time period where there was not trauma happening in the world that impacted the parents and the children of that generation. And I think that's still true. That's still continuing now. I know I mentioned this before. So many of my clients are talking about the anxiety that their kids have watching the United States or watching these two countries go to war and feeling the impact here in the United States. As far away as we are, the kids are feeling some anxiety about watching war begin or a country be invaded. And we also have the pandemic. And so again, whether it's the world, the universe, life, people, right? Because we take what's happening in the world, then we break it down to how this is impacting or what's also happening in communities, right? Whether there's tragedy or things that happen in more local communities where it's a little bit smaller stage that is being impacted. Break that down to family systems, right? Like trauma will happen on multiple stages and sometimes it's happening on all of the stages at the same time. So I think just recognizing, you know, now hopefully as we're maybe decreasing the stigma around therapy and making mental health more part of conversations, whether they're good conversations or informed conversations or not, we're talking about mental health. You know, it's, it's made its way into pop songs and different things like that where we're talking about mental health issues, not always in accurate or helpful ways, but it's being talked about. My hope is that as that stigma gets reduced and people are doing their own work, regardless of what happens in the world and things that we may not have control over, whether it's natural disasters or you know, a country invading another country, most of us don't really have any power over that. My hope is that as we do our own work, we become more attuned to our needs as individuals and then in turn become better parents and we are more intentional and conscientious as we're taking care of and having conversations with our kids who also are having their own emotions. Pete Walker says, we're all born with a healthy sense of blame. Now, I think for many people that might be news. He says, blame is an instinctual angry response to unfairness. It is an innate impulse of self-protection. Blame is the reflex to call to account those who hurt us and to refuse to take responsibility for wrongs and ills that are not our fault. Now, I think that's interesting. I remember, you know, when my kids were young, it was the first of many times that my kids did something, right, that I'm like, well, I'm just not being a very good parent right here. And, and yet I didn't want to get into like a power struggle or anything like that with my kids. You know, sometimes having to remind myself that, my childhood was not great. And so some of the things that I did to take care of my mom's needs or to try to not rock the boat in the house so that dad wouldn't get upset if he was around, different things like that, that like I might just clean the house, right? So that the stress of a house looking like six people live there doesn't rock the boat in a way that leads to an explosion, right? And there were a lot of times as a parent that I come home and I'm thinking, why don't my kids feel that way? Why aren't they concerned? And then I would be like, 
Oh, right. About me exploding? Yeah, I don't want to explode at my kids. I don't want my kids to have to caretake my emotions. And I want my kids to be kids. I don't need my kids to be caring for me as the parent. But I remember one of the times, you know, we're at the playground or we're playing with neighbor kids. I don't recall the exact circumstance. And my oldest was probably four, maybe, maybe three. So I had like three kids at that point because number three kind of just snuck in there on her own timeline. And she had done something. I don't remember what she had done, but she had hurt this other kid, right? And so I do what most parents on the playground or when the kids are playing with other kids, I do what most parents do, right? And I say to her like, oh, tell them sorry. And she looks at me and she's like, I'm not sorry. And I'm kind of like, uh, okay, like what do I do here, right? Because this other mom's like comforting her child and kind of looking at me like, uh, you're a bad parent. And I was just kind of like, okay, why don't we just walk over here, walk away and have a conversation, right? And of course, as happens often with parents, I only saw this last piece of this situation playing out where my child was mean to the other child. I had not been noticing these other things that were happening. And then my child kind of in this protective instinct did something to this other child that then that child cries and runs to mom and is like, this girl's being mean to me, right? So I'm kind of like, okay, okay, I I get that. And it's not okay to like, whatever she had done, hit, throw something. I don't remember what she had done, right? But also just knowing how many times I had witnessed, either as a kid myself or as a parent, how many times I saw a parent say to a kid, tell them you're sorry. And the kid was just like, sorry, whether they were sorry or not, right? I would have to say that sometimes when one of my kids was being mean to another one of the kids or hurt another one of the kids. And I would say, you need to tell them I'm sorry. And they're like, well, I'm not sorry. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't want you to apologize if you don't feel sorry about something because that's not good and that's not genuine. And recognizing that maybe instant sorrow can't be something that parents demand. And having to kind of talk with the kid about empathy. I mean, I wasn't talking with them about that word until maybe a little bit older, but talking about, yes, your feelings were hurt and how about their feelings and is this okay? And would you like this to happen to you? And back and forth. And and it wasn't the most convenient way of parenting. It wasn't the most efficient way of parenting. I do feel like on that front of parenting, I did fairly well and could even feel like in that moment when I told my child, like, apologize, my expectation was that she did, right? And again, it was one of those where I learned a lot as a parent from my kids as well. You know, my kids doing things that I was never allowed to do or would never have thought or dared to do actually started to teach me more about my own story and my own childhood and what I maybe would not have necessarily a memory of until I saw them react differently or speak up or say something and kind of realize like I never would have done that. And 
So I, I feel good about that. Like, not like I'm a perfect parent, not that I haven't made mistakes. And I also feel like, you know, having graduated with my master's degree at 25, prior to having any kids, that education and that learning process also helped me as a parent because I, I knew things, I had studied things and I understood things that I wouldn't have had I not gone into the field that I went into, that I hadn't studied and been able to apply it to myself. I think sometimes too, not all therapists go through an MSW program or whatever master's program they're going to in the field that they're going into. And not all therapists are able to learn something and apply it to their own story. You know, I think there's a lot of us that go into this field because of our own story, but we may or may not gain insight as we're going into the field and or as we're doing that learning. He continues, Pete Walker does, saying, blame, like sexual feelings, can be expressed in healthy or unhealthy ways. He says the safe, non-abusive venting of blame is essential to recovery. Healthy blaming allows us to release our stored up resentment about our childhood ordeals, freeing us from conscious or unconscious embitterment. He says dysfunctional parents hypocritically crush their children's instincts to blame unfairness in toxically blaming ways. He says most survivors were blasted with some version of the following when they tried to call a parent or a perpetrator to account. Do as I say, not as I do. Don't blame us. If you weren't such a rotten kid, we wouldn't have to hit you all the time. How dare you talk back to me? I'll wash your mouth out with soap. Don't try to get out of it by blaming your brother. You're the troublemaker. You always start it. Don't blame them. If you're in trouble, you must have brought it on yourself. I can also say as a parent, it's a fine line sometimes walking that, that last sentence. And again, this is the complexity of parenting that maybe we haven't always understood or seen the importance of having to kind of slow down, think through things and have conversations because parenting is complex and has larger ramifications than maybe we've given it credit before in history. Because on the one hand, I think it is important to talk to our kids about accountability and responsibility. And that doesn't mean we also don't have their back or that we aren't advocating for them or helping to protect them in a way that, you know, we're not saying you must have brought this on yourself. And so I, I think it's one of those complex lines that parents are required to walk as we're helping this child through the developing years, understanding their world, understanding relationships, and understanding most importantly themselves and how they fit in this world. So he says often the child in dysfunctional family learns early that it's too dangerous to act from their own will or desire. And because of this, she is at risk of becoming an adult burdened by the condition of learned helplessness. So learned helplessness is seen in survivors who kind of remain perpetually stuck in maybe this powerlessness that was the condition in their childhood. Maybe it was 
their only choice in childhood. But often when we think about the power that kids hold, it's not a lot. And so there is a helplessness, right? Like kids don't necessarily have access to resources that adults do, right? I talk to clients sometimes about the fact that like, yes, as an adult, I can still be victimized and things can happen to me that I am powerless to prevent. You know, let's say for example, I am pretty cautious to lock my doors, lock my house, you know, keep things secure. But let's say that my home is broken into. Now I have not had that experience, I will say. But let's say that that happens to me. I would feel kind of powerless about that. I would feel intruded on. I would feel some intrusive um, feelings around somebody being in my home, in my safe space, right? In this place that I have felt comfortable in and safe and secure in. But I also have resources, right? I can call the police. I can file a police report. I can file an insurance report and hopefully try to get reimbursement or somehow restore what was taken from me. I can go to therapy and try to work through um, the emotional security that was taken from me by this home intrusion or whatever, right? Those types of things. But kids, kids aren't necessarily going to go to a police officer. You know, sometimes they might go to a school teacher. They may not have the words to express it. They may, you know, not have the confidence to be able to express what's happening at home. You know, I, I know for me growing up, more than likely there were things that should have been, not more than likely, there should have been things that were reported, whether that was to state agencies, it should have been reported, right? And it wasn't, and I, I never said anything, and I knew not to say anything. So I followed that family rule to not speak about it. And I also followed the family rule to an extent on not feeling anything about it. And so I think there was some helplessness, right, that came just with me feeling like this is the roof over my head, right? This is where I'm fed. This is where I sleep. And I don't have that without this home, which means being part of this family. And so there is some learned helplessness. Like I can't do anything about this because I can't get a mortgage. I'm 14, I'm 10, right? I'm six. Where else am I going to go? And so there was some helplessness. Now learned helplessness is that when we do have access to resources or we do have an ability for things to be different, we've grown up, we've gotten older, we have more options, we still don't know that and we act as though we're still that helpless, powerless child. He says, blame becomes dysfunctional, talking about healthy blame and toxic blame. He says, blame becomes dysfunctional when it is chronically paired with learned helplessness. Some survivors use past unfairness to justify permanent surrender to present time suffering. He says, although they were truly victimized by their parents, they devolve into allowing their past helplessness to solidify into a victim or martyr complex. Instead of using blame in a healthy way to empower recovery, they eternally blame the past 
give up trying anything new, specialize in making excuses, and become convinced that life just has it in for them. He says, when this occurs, blame has become toxic. And he says, toxic blame is quite different from healthy blame. He says, it is a hardened position of blame that is more of a choice and an attitude than it is a feeling. He says, toxic blame is a static, frozen state that isolates a person from the fluid, dynamic richness of whole emotional being. Now, maybe many of us experience toxic blame in our childhood from one of our parents, right? Where they don't feel power themselves. They abuse that power or they're taking it out on us because they also feel like they were a victim to their circumstances and they hadn't done their own work. They hadn't been able to navigate and re-examine and reassess what had happened in a way that took them into processing it and doing things differently. And so instead, you know, they say things like, well, life isn't fair. I was told that a lot. My mom said that to me several times, like at young ages, like I don't, I don't even fully remember the story. You know, it's been a long time since she's told it just because she's, she didn't tell it like often. Right. But I know that there was a story about me in kindergarten. I don't remember exactly what I had done. It was something about, we were walking to school and something happened and I did something and it was out of this fairness, right? I felt this need like that is unfair. And I stepped in and I did something that got me in trouble or that my mom heard about later. And so my mom was talking to me about it and I was kind of defending myself like, well, that is not right and that is not fair. And my mom just said like, the world isn't fair, Jackie. Like it's time that you learn that not everything is fair. And I remember, I think I've said on this um, podcast before, there was an incident in sixth grade again, where a girl was being bullied by several of the boys in the sixth grade. You know, she wasn't a popular girl. She had moved in, I think the year before. So we didn't really know her. She moved in in fifth grade and this was sixth grade. She kind of lived out in a rural part of the town where, you know, she didn't really have neighbors or other people who knew her. You know, she didn't have really good clothes or clean clothes and had some hygiene issues and that type of stuff, right? And I I knew that as much as everybody else. Like she didn't quite fit in. Um, but these boys, she had ridden her bike to school this day, which we all did. We all either walked or rode our bikes to school if it was nicer weather. And she had ridden her bike to school. And when she got to school and was locking up her bike, um, the chain was off. Or when she got to school, the chain came off, right? Which was a common occurrence to me as a kid, like we all knew how to put our bike chain back on and to kind of do the basics on bike fixing because we spent so much time on our bikes, right? We just, that was a necessary thing to know. And so when she got to school and was parking her bike at the bike rack, you know, she was trying to fix the chain and her fingers got oily and dirty, which fingers do, right? It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, if you're fixing your bike chain, your fingers are going to get dirty. That happened to me too. And so the boys were bullying her, being unkind to her about how dirty her hands were. And at that point, I just couldn't take it anymore, right? I probably, I should have felt more, maybe I, I don't remember feeling 
things, knowing what people were saying. I don't know that I had seen them say these things right directly to her. I knew those things were being said about her, but not directly to her. And I just felt like that was a very unfair circumstance. Like none of us that were standing there, including the boys who were making fun of her, could have fixed their own bike chain without getting their hands dirty. And I just didn't feel right about it. And I stepped in and it was the first time I'd ever hit somebody. I actually hit the boy in the nose, gave him a bloody nose and, you know, got called into the principal's office. My teacher was there. My teacher talked to me. Everything was fine in the grand scheme of things, right? But it was, again, another time where my mom told me, like, Jackie, life is not fair. And again, in my mind, I would never say this to my mom. We never had this conversation. But there are times where it doesn't have to be unfair. Like in this situation, that didn't need to be happening. And I felt like somebody should speak to that or step into that. And why not me? I guess, right? And so, like, maybe life is not fair. But sometimes we can do something And maybe other times there's not a whole lot to do. And so again, I don't know, I don't know enough about my mom's story to know if that was, or her own, you know, toxic blame and learned helplessness that was shutting down kind of my instinctual, like something's not right here and somebody should do something. One of the things that I have loved reading this book and he talks about it. He's talked about it before. I think I've talked about it before, but it's kind of interwoven into many of the chapters, if not all of the chapters, where he talks about this healthy self-protection, which I think the wording and the way he posits this concept to me is not something I've necessarily encountered in other books or other theories or modalities that I've learned And yet I think it's so important. I've definitely worked with clients who did not know how to advocate for themselves or who took too much ownership for something that was not that much of them to own, right? Which is an issue of self-protection. So he quotes Theodore Rubin who says, I never, absolutely never side with anyone who is against my welfare. I aid nobody who detracts from my dignity who makes me feel less than human, either through subhuman onslaughts or superhuman demands. I fight or avoid people whose effect is ultimately destructive to my validity as a person, or who in any way dilutes my ability to take myself seriously. Now, I I think again, that's not something kids can or know to do. I think self-protection in children usually comes from having protective parents who don't overprotect or overstep in for kids, but who can adequately self-protect and advocate for the kids in a way that kids start to learn how to do that. Now, you know, my kids are all the age of adult, you know, 26 almost. We've got three birthdays coming up next month. So my oldest will be 26 down to 19. My youngest, her birthday is next Friday. So I'll have 26 down to 19 and I would still consider them young adults. It seems like things are on a pretty good course for them, but I do find still that there are times where as a mom, I am coaching them on advocating for themselves. Like it's not appropriate for me, you know, to 
solve this problem for them that like we're not at that age anymore. And so that would be inappropriate of me to do that myself, right? But when they talk to me about something that happens or they come to me with a question, you know, my daughter came to me with a question like, how do you deal with a passive aggressive boss? Well, first of all, it's great that you can identify that they're passive aggressive, right? So we had that conversation. How do you deal with somebody in authority who is passive aggressive, right? You know, sometimes advocating my oldest, I would say has been bullied by a professor, unfortunately, in her social work program, which should never happen. And talking with her, we've had many discussions about the need for her to advocate for herself. That's still one where I might help her more hands-on than I normally would, or even just support her, attend some meetings with her, something like that as an emotional support person. But there's still times that it's hard at those ages to advocate for yourself. You're not quite seen as an adult, but you're not a kid. And so advocacy for self or self-protection can also be tricky. And so, you know, that's not something that I would say this quote by Theodore Rubin, even that my kids are at a place where they can fully embrace that because they're still figuring out who they are. They're still figuring out relationships and what's my part and what's their part and what conflict can be worked through and what cannot. You know, those are complicated issues that take time to learn. He says it's normal, healthy, and necessary to occasionally feel blame towards others whether or not we were traumatized in childhood. So again, this isn't just something that folks who were traumatized in childhood feel. They might have more access to that blame as self-protection than those where it had to be extinguished or repressed or undeveloped. But he says all human beings, like most animals, are born with an instinct of self-protection that automatically responds to hurt with blaming anger. The victim who screams out, back off, or stop, thief, is instinctively expressing blame. He says blame is an integral part of the essential survival skill of identifying aggression and resisting its perpetration. And in a world where too many prey upon the powerless, we sometimes need to need blame to identify and protect ourselves from being victimized. Now, I would say, too, you know, going back to Theodore Rubin's quote about, I fight or avoid people whose effect is ultimately destructive to my validity as a person. Now, it doesn't always have to be direct, right? Maybe it's not an assault on me, but I think most groups who are marginalized, and I will say as a person who's white, there's privilege that I have because of my skin color. But my gender, you know, again, more so than some women of color, I have some privilege, but I've also experienced sexism. I've experienced misogyny. I've even experienced it this past six months, twice, right? Um, in instances. And I was able to address it. I didn't address it right at the time, but I circled back and talked to somebody who, you know, in the situation, had some authority, explained the situation. They understood it. They both were like, I'm so embarrassed that this happened. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, right? Which was a great outcome. That doesn't always happen as women when we point out sexism. 
And I'm grateful that in these two instances, it did. But I also know that as a white woman, I get some privilege. And currently as a white woman with some means, right? I'm not poverty. I didn't come from means, but I would say as a white woman with means currently, I understand that my voice might be respected more than somebody else's voice. And so I also feel like as women of color are discriminated against or are treated in sexist ways, that is a threat to me. And not that I just care about it because it's a threat to me, but anytime somebody is being treated in a way that goes against their overall physical, mental, emotional well-being, that is a threat to us. And I think we need to be sensitive to that. I think we need to see that when that happens. And I think we need to, you know, there's not always a one size fits all how to respond to that. But I think we have to know that and know if that behavior is accepted, that becomes a threat to all of us. He says, the practice of blaming abusive behavior gives our inner child something she's been waiting for all of her life a sense that she can use anger to protect herself in times of danger. It awakens her to the fact that she now lives in an adult body. She is now bigger, stronger, and more capable of championing herself. I love that, right? Like sometimes I'll ask clients, what would your younger self be sad to know that you've stopped doing? So that's sometimes a question that I'll ask clients, right? If that seems applicable to what we're talking about, like things that maybe they used to love or do as a kid, and now there's not much they do that brings them any sense of joy or aliveness. But sometimes I'll also say, what would your younger kid love to know that you now can do that they couldn't do? And just that paragraph where he says, the practice of blaming abusive behavior gives our inner child something she's been waiting for all her life, a sense that she can use anger to protect herself in times of danger. It awakens her to the fact that she now lives in an adult body. She is now bigger, stronger, and more capable of championing herself. I love that. He says, blame encourages us like nothing else to face fearful and necessary life challenges. It helps us establish our basic rights of self-expression and call to account anyone who tries to deny them. Blame allows us to say no to unwanted requests or offers and to hostile words or actions. It opens our eyes to currently unfair situations that we may be tolerating as if we were still powerless children. It allows us to recapture the natural lion-heartedness of unwounded children. And just reading that, I can think of so many times in my, even my adult life, even if I were to go back the past 10 years, past decade, right? 15 years. And my journey to accept, in his words, I didn't know maybe at the time, I didn't have that word, that blame encouraged me to face these fearful and necessary life challenges, that it helped me establish my basic rights of self-expression and to call to account anyone who tries to deny them. I can think of many instances where as an adult woman speaking to a male and saying, no, 
No, that's not okay. No, I'm not putting up with that. No, I don't do that. And that took a lot of work for me to get to that place. And sometimes afterwards I might question myself or feel doubt or like, am I making a bigger deal out of this than it is? But at the end of that, also coming to this like, no, that was real and that was a threat. And I spoke to that and I drew a line. I said, here is my boundary. You don't get to do this and I'm not willing to whatever, right? I can think of several examples of that. And he talks about this phrase, no recovery versus recovering no. And I think that's important, you know, as I talk about, especially in the field of addiction, you know, we talk about recovery a lot. But also I talk about on this podcast, I talk about to a lot of clients that like all of us need recovery. Like I wouldn't necessarily identify myself as having an addiction. But that doesn't mean I didn't need recovery. It doesn't mean that when I went to my first 12-step meeting as a therapist taking clients that I wasn't like, whoa, what is this and why is this speaking to me, right? And that when I was working the 12 steps alongside some of those clients that I was like, I don't know why this is resonating, but it is resonating with me. And so I, I think, you know, kind of recovering that no, that basic no, he says, a toddler's angry no at another's attempt to take his food or toy is an early and instinctual expression of blame. You know, sometimes I will say that no is the beginning of that toddler's boundaries. You know, sometimes it may be completely, you know, off kilter when they're, you know, you're giving them their favorite, you know, treat and they're like, no. But it's they're beginning to start to use these boundaries and start to feel something within themselves and express it as a no. So I've always said that it's the beginning of the boundary, right? But I think it also applies where he says it's that early instinctual expression of blame. He says the child's no says that the behavior of taking his property is blameworthy and rightfully resistible. No is his way of setting limits and establishing healthy boundaries. So we are talking about the same thing. He says, without the response of no, the child is vulnerable to exploitation. He says, ironically, many children are absolutely forbidden to say no to all authority figures and yet are expected to just say no to drugs or just say no in times where they're unsafe, right? Or being bullied. And yet, where would they have learned to use no if it wasn't at home? Again, quoting Theodore Rubin, who wrote powerfully, he says, I must have the right to say no. Only I can give myself this right on a meaningful basis. My no is a function of some of the deepest compassionate feelings for myself. This no of mine represents whatever force I can bring against anything in me or outside of me which I recognize as being antithetical to my well-being. No is my block and fortress to and against self-hate. No is my stand against impossible demands wherever they come from. I just think that is so powerfully written. And then he talks about how children are born with that exquisite sense of fairness. My mom did not know that. And how often parents wrathfully attack their kids if we say no or we're expressing that we don't think something is fair. 
He says, I believe children repress their earliest memories of their parents' rageful oppression in the same way that adults repress their perception of gruesome accidents. If I suddenly come across something shockingly violent, my instinctive response might be as follows. Oh, that's so awful. I can't even look at it. I don't even want to think about it. I just want to get that picture out of my mind. I'm never going to think about that again. Don't even remind me of it. He says, in a similar way, I believe many children banish memories of what befell them when they tried to stand up to their parents. You know, I I think about how, you know, one of my first therapy clients was like a seven-year-old little girl. And she had been sexually abused. It had been reported. She'd been through the court system, all of that type of stuff, right? All of that had already happened. And I think she had been working with some therapists through that process, but parents were bringing her in just saying, now that it's all over, that's kind of done with, we think she still needs therapy, right? And so as I got to know her and would talk to her, in many ways I started to see, and this was a helpful supervisor who helped me to see this, because I didn't even have kids at that point, but pointing out the many ways that this little girl kept telling me her story. Not always in the words that I would recognize of this story of abuse, but she would draw it in pictures. And as we talk about it, and I started to kind of tune into it, all of these stories in her picture were at some point in the process of her story. Something bad had happened. This was scary. This was mean. This was happy. This was my family. This was her perpetrator was not inside of her immediate family. And so I started to watch the multiple ways that she just kept telling me her story. Remember this, like, and just talking to her about that. And I remember on one of our, it was kind of towards the end of my internship. So this was springtime in Louisiana. I went to LSU, which would put it springtime is probably more like February, March, Because like by May, where it's really good spring here in Utah, it's like humid and getting too hot in Louisiana. And I remember one of the sessions, she came in and she said, Miss Jackie, did you see the flowers blooming? And I said, I did. And she's like, did you know these flowers have not bloomed since that happened to me? Now, obviously, the flowers bloomed every year, right? But for her... There was this like, I'm starting to reconnect again with my life. And I'm starting to see beautiful things in my world. And that was the beginning of her expressing that. And I was like, I think we're nearing the end of my work with her, at least at seven, right? Not that she might not have needed it a couple of times throughout her life, but I was like, I think we're done here. Like if she's saying these flowers have not bloomed since that bad thing happened to me. But did you see, Miss Jackie, that they're blooming? Yes. Yes, I did. And I thought about that. You know, one of my kids had an experience when she was walking to kindergarten. The school was like literally around the corner from our house. And I would watch her. I would stand out and watch her walk to the end of the road. And then I knew when she turned the corner, that was her friend's house. And they would meet up and then they'd walk like two more house lengths to the school. And it was afternoon kindergarten. So I would watch her, you know, do that. Now we were, it was kind of a newer developing neighborhood. And on my street that we lived on our house, we were like 
the, us and the neighbor right across the street, our houses were the first two houses completed. We moved in the exact same uh, weekend. And so there was a lot of construction going on. There were a lot of, you know, cars in and out of the neighborhood that really were there for working on houses, right? Doing construction of some type or another. And so this particular day, I'd watched her walk down to the end. I knew that typically her friend was standing on the front porch waiting for her. And that was fine, right? And so I'd gone back in the house and was in the kitchen. And a couple minutes later, right, my five, six-year-old, because her birthday was at the beginning of the school year, was at the back door, just kind of pounding on the back door, right? And I was right there in the kitchen. I let her in. I was like, what happened? And she was just like, somebody tried to kidnap me. And I don't know if that actually happened, right? I, I mean, that's when I started to realize like, oh, there's a lot of people in this neighborhood that I have no idea if they are legitimately in this neighborhood or not. And again, I typically watched her walk all the way down to the corner. This day had been no different. I don't know if she was actually in any danger, right? But she felt she was. And so I said, oh, I'm so glad you came back. And she came back through kind of backyards, like not out front by the sidewalks. And I was just like, you're so smart to come this back way because a car couldn't come and to come to the back door. Like, I'm so glad that you kept yourself safe and that you were brave and you knew what to do to get back to me. And, you know, for the next several while until there were more houses on our street that she could walk with those kids, I would drive her down to her friend's house um, just to kind of help alleviate some of that anxiety for her. But often she would tell me the story. You know, we might be driving in the car and she'd be like, mom, remember when I was almost kidnapped? And I'm thinking, yes, this was like two days ago. And I would say, yeah. And she'd like, and remember this. And then remember I came back and you opened the back door and you told me I was brave. Yep. And remember you said that I got myself safe. Yep. I remember that. I'm so proud of you. Right. That night we're going to sleep. Mom, remember when I almost got kidnapped? Right. Just this need to talk about it as a way of expressing what had happened to her, kids' feelings, different things like that, that they're going through, right? I think that's a natural instinct that we have as kids. And unfortunately for me, unfortunately for many of you, that wasn't something that happened in childhood. That wasn't a natural organic process that our parents would help walk us through and listen to us talk about it and validate what happened and just go back there and say, yeah, I remember that. I remember this, right? And instead, we weren't allowed to talk about it. Our feelings, either we couldn't have them or we didn't know what they were. We weren't able to necessarily see what was happening for us. And I think that's, you know, again, that's something that I think for so many kids, we just kind of have to become almost amnesic to those experiences. And then we wonder why in adulthood we're having all of these problems and we can't recall anything bad from our childhood. He says, those who were traumatized out of their blame in early childhood frequently become adults who can't even entertain the notion that their parents might in any way be justifiably blamed. Yet deep inside them, they still harbor unconscious infernos of unprocessed rage and blame about being tyrannized as children. 
He says, when we allow ourselves to feel and express blame, we potently diminish our denial. Blame often opens our eyes to the truth that great harm was done to us through no fault of our own. We were not born bad or defective. We deserved love and respect as every child does. Had we been given it, we would now find it easy to nurture and protect ourselves. We would not have histories of tolerating gross unfairness from other authority figures throughout our lives. Our ability to like ourselves would not be limited merely to the times when we are happy, pleasing others, or performing at our peaks. Now, he also talks about how blame is an ongoing process. He quotes Sheldon Roth, who says, reconstruction of the past in order to make sense of the present turns into an ongoing process. One, in fact, that proceeds throughout one's life. He talks about how he has gotten to a point where he feels a great deal of forgiveness towards his mother and her abuseful and neglectful behaviors. He says, I still sometimes get into emotional flashback to the fear and the shame that are byproducts of her myriad attacks on my self-expression. And, you know, I, I think unfortunately, when there has been complex PTSD in childhood, well, I wouldn't say it's complex PTSD in childhood. When there is childhood trauma, it becomes complex. And it is something we're navigating and assessing and untangling throughout our life because it happened at such an impressionable time in our development. He also quotes Antonio Machado. I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name, where he says, I thought my fire was out and stirred the ashes. I burnt my fingers. I love that because it so succinctly I think taps into that idea that of the ongoing process of this work that we might feel like, okay, I've gotten through that anger that was stirred in me and we think that that fire has gone out and then we might poke around or stir the ashes with our finger and it burns us again. Again, that may not be a, you know, it happened this day and then the next day. Sometimes that plays out over a year or two. But I think we have to be empathetic and compassionate with ourselves that this is an ongoing process and that we're not done with this process while we can make significant improvements and significant progress and live in a very different life. That doesn't mean that we're done assessing and sorting and feeling and blaming. He says, our blame helps us to discriminate between internal processes that are innate and life-affirming and those that are learned, alien, and self-destructive. Effective blame restores our instinctive drive to renounce the virulent messages we were brainwashed with when we were too young to protect ourselves. The healthy anger of our blame can exercise the ghosts of dad's disapproving scowls and the reverberations of mom's shaming criticism. And then he has a couple of good tips or ways like little activities or exercises that we can do. Um, one is called turning up the volume, different things that we can do to kind of differentiate and start to learn what is ours, what is normal, what's an internal process, what was externally learned and integrated and needs to be worked on. Now, for those of you who are tempted to 
hold compassion for your parents despite knowing some of the damage that was done that you're still dealing with in your adult life or that is still causing problems and grief and sorrow in your adult life. He says this, the acceptance and expression of newly emerging blame is usually the most direct path back to forgiveness. He says, I have seen this demonstrated over and over in my work with clients. I have also observed a similar manifestation of this dynamic in preschool children. Most of the very young children I work with, girls as well as boys, need little encouragement to physically anger out their blame at the soft dummy I use for anger work. When they finish pummeling it, most of them then transform the dummy into a cuddling toy, whether it represents an abstract bad guy or the real person that they are angry at. He says, as the self-blame of shame is eroded, we naturally move into feelings of self-forgiveness an essential preliminary for broader feelings of forgiveness. If these feelings, doesn't always happen, but if these feelings are to expand to include our parents, we must acquire a detailed recollection of what we are forgiving them for. A specific understanding of the major themes of our childhood abuse and neglect. Without this, we remain locked in the pain and resentment of being developmentally arrested in many aspects of our being. The hurt of not recovering adequate self-esteem and self-expression blocks our access to the part of ourselves that can genuinely feel forgiving. I think, you know, that's just a great reminder that if we are wanting to hold that compassion for our parents, we cannot do that at the expense of us examining and expressing the themes of our childhood, whether that was more overt abuse, more covert abuse, or neglect. I'm so grateful if you've been listening to these episodes on the Tao of Fully Feeling. Whether you and I have had conversations about this book or not, whether maybe you know, you're know you having conversations with me as we talk about these episodes, we talk about this book on your commute or while you're on a walk with the dog or whatever, I appreciate you being part of this journey as we've taken time to really pull apart the ideas and the concepts that he writes about both professionally and personally in this book. And again, like I said at the beginning, we've got two more chapters left. I'll release both of those next Monday. I'm going to give chapter eight its own episode, chapter nine its own episode. And I thank you for being part of this journey as we've looked at this book, The Tao of Fully Feeling. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.